0: Pista OWS. Does anybody know what that stands for? All right. Good job. All right. So this is a 55-year-old man. His HIV was diagnosed on routine screening a while ago. He's asymptomatic, non-smoker, social drinker, no comorbidities or co-infections, and his baseline viral load was 135,000 and his CD4 count was 310, and he was HLA-B5701 negative. There we go. Um, he initiated fixed-dose combination of efavirenz, tenofovir, and m and at six months, his viral load was totally suppressed, less than 50 copies, and his T-cell had increased to 487, and he remained suppressed for two-and-a-half years. So he comes back on a routine visit, and his T-cell count is 382, and his viral load is 294 copies. So this is one of the questions, if it would work, would be, is this failure? So how many people say yes? How many people say no? All right, so most people say no. So it's all a matter of, of how you want to spin this. But in the past, the DHHS guidelines was really looking at 400 as the cutoff. And so um, his viral load wasn't greater than 400, but it's been changed now since January to 200 based on the newer assays that we have. And we know that the lower limits of sensitivity, there's a little bit of wobble there with, with below 200, but 200 is the new 400. Is that like pink is the new black? Yeah. Okay, so um, virologic failure is an RNA greater than 400 copies after 24 weeks, greater than 50 copies after 48 weeks, or greater than 400 copies after viral suppression. Now, current day, it's 200. So at the time that he presented that 294, we probably would have said no. You could also make the argument, was it confirmed, right, because you want to confirm that and make sure – so that's another reason. So there, see, there really wasn't a wrong answer there. You could be yes or no, depending on, on how you want to read that. Um, and immunologic failure is failure to achieve and maintain adequate CD4 increase despite being virologically suppressed. And then clinical progression is defined as the occurrence of HIV-related events after being on therapy for more than three months, and that excludes having immune reconstitution syndromes. <clears throat> So what is your next step? Would you just continue then the tenofovir FTC efavirenz and monitor his viral load for response? Would you switch to another combination, or would you try to genotype? So how many would continue? Okay. How many would switch to another combination? And how many would genotype? Okay. So the majority said they would continue, and, and that's what I would do in this, this setting as well and monitor. Um, you can switch to another combination. I'm going to go over times you would do that. But genotyping, if your viral load's really 294, the chance of getting a genotype with that low-level viremia um, is not great, but some, some will try to do it. So there's a few things looking at Again, these are coming from the DHH guidelines. Is, is Nobody really knows what that optimal time to change is, right? It's a continuum and, and mutations occur over time. And ongoing viral replication promotes selection of drug resistance mutations, but again, it's over what time does that occur and how high is your viremia, etc. Some recommend a change for any repeated detectable HIV RNA after you're suppressed to less than fifty. And then BLIPS is defined as a single isolated RNA of less than 1,000 copies, and is usually not associated with any subsequent failure. And the management of HIV RNA in the range of when you have greater than 48 copies to less than 200 copies is unclear, and the risks of developing drug resistance and virologic failure really have not been defined. And overall, when you look at some of the, the larger Longitudinal studies, you'll see that the predicted values of having a threshold of less than 200 and less than 50 are essentially the same. So for repeated detectable viremia, when you have a, a greater than a thousand copies and no resistance identified, one is you want to evaluate the accuracy of your resistance test. You want to assess what the adherence of that individual is. And in those circumstances, it would be reasonable then to consider resuming the same regimen or starting a new regimen and then repeating a genotype in two to four weeks if that person doesn't suppress or if their viral load continues to rise. Um, Some have mentioned about intensification. We haven't had great luck with the intensification studies, but certainly when you're looking at this very low viremia addition of tenofovir or somebody's unboosted or unboosted adazanivir, is to consider Ritonavir boosting at that time. And then for management on these cases of low-level viremia, really in this, again, the blips, you don't do anything. You repeat it. They're undetectable. There's no intervention required. If it's greater than 48 and less than 200, there's no consensus on what, what the best management is. Many people just then continue to follow the HIV RNA, maybe a little bit more closer intervals, over time to then assess the need for any changes. But if you have persistent RNA greater than 200, that's where the, the development of resistance is likely. Try to get resistance testing as possible, and that's when you really need to consider a change. So this is when he becomes Mr. OWS, because while he was on efaviren, and M-tricitabine, he lost his job. He increased his alcohol intake, and he acknowledges that he's, he's had intermittent adherence. And his viral load is 4,243 copies, and his T-cell count is 397. So if a genotype is performed, what would you expect to find? No relevant mutations, an M184V, a K103N, a D30NL90M, an M184V, K103N, plus one or two TAMs in there, or option two and three, which is one hundred eighty four and a one oh three. So how many like number one? Number two? Number three? Number four? Number five? And number six. Okay, so the majority likes number six. So what did he have? He in fact had the one hundred eighty four and the and the K one oh three N. And here I have um Sharon Riddler and others from ACTG 5142 reported the resistance that they found in a clinical trial that individuals randomized to either uh, boosted lipinavir with a favrins or two nukes and boosted lipinavir or two nukes and a favrins. Now, in this case, this was mixed. Some of the the subjects were on tenafavir FTC, others were on AZT. 3TC, in fact, some even on, on uh, stavidine and, and 3TC. But the, the finding here that's, that's important is that you can see in those that were in the epharins group that 26% had mutations in two, both classes. So it's not surprising here that this individual, with his intermittent adherence, developed both a 184V and a 103N. If he had been on AZT or D4T, more than likely you would have had that other answer where you had TAMs as well. So this is, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of the time here talking about what is his second line options. So which of these is correct? An immediate change is not mandatory because his viral load is below 5,000. Monotherapy with a boosted PI because his viral load, again, is below 5,000. Using one of the newer drugs, either etravirine, maraviroc, or raltegravir, plus two nukes, is the best option because it preserves the PIs for future failure. Unboosted atazanavir and two nukes, because again, the viral load's low, so you're not as worried about potency. A boosted PI and two NRTIs is the best evidence-based action, or Raltegravir in a boosted PI is shown non-inferior against other options. So how many think one is fine? It's 4,000, let them be. All right. How many monotherapy with a boosted PI? How about one of the newer drugs? All right. Unboosted atazanavir in two nukes? A boosted PI? And raltegravir and a boosted PI. All right, so a few for that, but most want to go for number five. So let's, let's kind of go through this and, and figure out what's right or wrong. But does a single PI work just as well as a PI with NRTIs in a treatment experienced patient with viral load greater than 1,000? How many say true? And how many say false? All right, you guys are all over this stuff. So that's right. So these are all the studies of boosted PI monotherapy. And what's interesting here is that, is that most of these studies really were done for simplification. So there were people that were already suppressed and then simplified to uh, PI, boosted PI monotherapy. And then there were a couple of trials uh, looking at boosted lopinavir in the naive and with induction maintenance. This is a meta-analysis that was done by Bierman and colleagues looking at uh, all, the, all the studies up to, like, 2008 with PI monotherapy, and there were 14 studies in patients that had completely suppressed HIV-RNA and eight studies in which the patients had unsuppressed HIV-RNA. And in and, and looking at all these studies together in intent-to-treat analysis, almost 68% of the patients had undetectable RNA at the end of follow-up, which would be low for what we would think about, what we'd want for a naive population. But here again is looking overall at, at, um, this is looking at the six randomized controlled trials that were done with boosted lipinavir, and you can see that every single trial favored having combination antiretroviral therapy over monotherapy. And then most recently, there's been two uh, trials looking at boosted duronavir for this. Um, in the Monet trial, you can see here at 96 weeks that the, the group that simplified down to uh, duronavir, ritonavir, uh, monotherapy versus um, having boosted duronavir with two nukes, that at 96 weeks, monotherapy was not non-inferior. I know Trip loves those double negatives. But, but, you know, at 48 weeks, this looked really good. But as time went on, more failed. But the, the good news was that in, in the, you can see that even in individuals that were on the duranavir monotherapy, when you intensified with the nukes, you actually came back up, and you can see 92% then were fully suppressed, and there wasn't resistance associated with that. And in that case, then monotherapy was non-inferior to being on on boosted Derenivir with two nukes. And then in the Monet, I guess it's Monroe, uh, trial at 48 weeks, at the per-protocol analysis, the monotherapy was non-inferior. But again, when you looked at the intent to treat analysis, the monotherapy was not non-inferior. So again, suggesting that PI monotherapy is not as um, efficacious, more or less, to being on two nukes and a, and a boosted PI. And then there was a study um, done in, in Africa. This is a SARA study, the second line antiretroviral therapy, that had 192 subjects evaluated 24 weeks after the switch to lepen- boosted lupinavir or continue their combination antiretroviral therapy after virologic failure intolerance, or progression, and these were individuals that were on the DART trial, and if you remember, the DART trial was individuals that were were randomized to um, either get laboratory monitoring or just be watched for clinical signs and symptoms of failure and be switched at that time, and these individuals were on two nukes and and, uh, boosted lipinavir or Favrenzivirapine. You can see here in those individuals that went to boosted lopinavir only, um, you can see that there was more virologic failure in that group compared to those that continued on combination antiretroviral therapy. So 59 versus 77% were less than 50 copies. So in in summary there, so the PI, the the big key really with the, the PI monotherapy is that Nobody has really looked at PI monotherapy for second line. In fact, we have a real shortcomings of what to do next. And part of that is because we all kind of know what to do next, right? And so those trials have always been really difficult even to enroll. But which of the following is true after you have a favrins failure? That etravirine plus two nukes results in 80% virologic suppression, Maraviroc plus two nukes results in 80% virologic suppression. Raltegravir plus two nukes results in 80% virologic suppression, or none of the above is true. So how many go for number one? Number two? Number three? And number four? Yeah, so none of the above is true, right? Because, again, it's uh, taking individuals that have a true efavirenz failure only and then randomizing them to compare what? Or, you know, it may have to be a single arm study, giving etravirine or maraviroc or raltegravir. So I think all of us feel comfortable doing this, but we don't really have the data that supports this. And, and so how do we come up with this? Well, it's really from in vitro work. But when you look at etravirine, for instance, after having NNRTI failure, there were 16 individuals receiving an NNRTI-containing regimen. And note, 13 of the 16 were actually on nevirapine, not on efavirenz. And they had a viral load greater than 2,000 and a phenotypic resistance to NNRTIs. And they got etravirine for seven days as a substitute for their current NNRTI, NNRTI failing uh, therapy. So that's it. That's your human studies, okay? They're usually PK studies, They're, but all the data, for the most part, in, with etravirine, moravirac, raltegravir, a treatment naive or this, switch studies. So we have to take that into consideration. When you have somebody that's failed now, a fixed-dose combination of tenofovir, FTC, and efavirins. So I bring up the switch mark mainly because, not because it's with the favrins, but I think this is a good study to remind us how important it is to know what your background resistance is. If you recall, this was a study in which people were suppressed on bucidlipinovir, and they were randomized to either continue bucidlipinovir or to take raltegravir. And what we saw happen was that there was more virologic failure in the raltegravir arm, and, again, thinking about this, why did this happen, is because the raltegravir wasn't supported enough with the nucleosides and going back. You know, some of these patients had been on previous regiments before, and probably had this been their first regimen and doing that switch would be fine. But what about the gentleman that I talked about, Mr. OWS? So he's got at least he's got FTC resistance, or right? he's got an M184. So it's a matter of your comfort level of knowing there. Had he been on AZT3TC and he had those TAMs, that would be even more risky to put somebody on, again, tenofovir FTC plus one of these newer agents. So you really have to consider what your background history is um, and have the genotype available to help you do that. So what about a boosted PI and raltegravir? How many in this room, so number one, I have never prescribed boosted PI and raltegravir. How many have prescribed but it hasn't worked? You've had some people fail. And how many have patients that are on a boosted PI and ral and they're doing well? What? They came to you on it. All right. (laughs) So, you know, we've had some disappointing results. When we had the results with anivir and RAL, that just did not seem to work out for reasons still that remain unclear. Um, but in ACTG 5262, this was a single-arm study, um, and patients received duranavir, boosted doronavir and meltegravir. And, you know, it was disappointing because it was lower than expected uh, you know, virologic suppression rate, and 26 percent wound up failing uh, this regimen at 48 weeks. But interesting was, was the fact that there was a significant difference between those who had viral loads less than 100,000 compared with those that had a viral load greater than 100,000. So this, this boosted duranivir RAL, uh, again, there was more virologic failure if your baseline RNA was greater than 100,000. But what about the PROGRESS study? This was presented at Rome, and and PROGRESS was actually had a comparator arm. Remember, the other one was a single arm. There wasn't a comparator arm, and you always do have those flukes that happen, and that's why it's always nice to have that comparator arm available. But this was looking at boosted lopinavir and raltegravir versus boosted lopinavir and tenofovir FTC, and, uh, again, treatment-naive study and followed for 48 weeks, and, and what they found here was that there was no significant difference um, through now 96 weeks. You can see that uh, the virologic suppression uh, was, you know, 68% and 60, looks like 66% here. And then for, um, you can see on the mean CD4 increase through 96 weeks, That again, that the CD4 increase is really similar between the two arms. The thing that was really um, interesting that was presented at Rome was the fact that there was a difference with bone mineral density. And this came up earlier questions with uh, Joel Glant's talk was you can see here that uh, in the arm with boosted lipinavir and raltegravir that there really wasn't any significant loss in total BMD. In fact, the total BMD increased a little bit, and the spine just slightly down from where it was at baseline. But you can see there was a significant decrease in the uh, boosted Lipinavir with Tenofovir and FTC, um, bringing us back to can we find that nuke-sparing regimen somewhere. So maybe there's some hope about using a boosted PI and in Raltegravir. Then other strategies. This was another strategy that was presented at IAS, and this is not a randomized controlled trial. This is looking at somebody's experience in their in their practice, looking at boosted darunavir and etravirine um, as a way to spare uh, nukes. And 70, almost 78 percent were given boosted darunavir and etravirine once a day. Remember, Joel had talked about this of using, you know, the. 400 milligrams, put it in water and take it once a day. Um, and you can see here this patient population was, was pretty experienced. Their median duration of HIV was 17 years. They'd been on heart for a median of 12 years. And at the time of the switch, 90% had NUC mutations, 55% had primary PI mutations, and 48% had had NNRTI mutations. And at the time of the switch, 64% of these individuals had, had viral loads less than 50 copies. And then after the switch, after six months of being on this regimen, 87% were now uh, undetectable. So not ready for prime time, but I bring it up as another alternative that some of us may have even used ourselves in thinking about ways, especially in the setting where you do have a lot of nucleoside resistance, what is your next choice? So, in summary, when um, looking at virologic failure, you really want to add at least two, preferably three fully active agents to an optimized background. Um, It's really important that you determine this by both the antiretroviral history and resistance testing, and consider potent ritonavir-boosted PIs, some of the drugs with the newer mechanisms of actions. But in general, one active drug should not be added to a failing regimen. Um, because drug resistance is likely to develop quickly. So in looking at the options here, the audience was correct that the, the best option is that a boosted PI in two nukes is the best evidence-based action. Um, but I do think there's these other options for us to consider, and, and as with everything else that we do, it has to be individualized for that patient. So I will turn it over to Tripp, who's now going to take us to somebody that even has more experience. Thank you, Judy.
1: Okay, question to the audience. How many say duronavir? Me. And how many people say Darunavir? Okay, I'm not uh, saying anything, Judy. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I'm not trying to imply anything.
0: Okay. Yeah, right.
1: She's got such a cute accent. I just love her. Okay.
0: How many from Queens say Duronavir?
1: (laughs) How many Queens say Duronavir? No, never mind. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, let's move ahead here on that note. Okay, fasten your seatbelts. This is a tough case. Patient referred by colleague. 67-year-old male wealth management advisor. That's so it's kind of the opposite of Judy's case. <laughs> but notice that both of our cases are over the age of 50. So this is geriatric HIV at work. Yep. Okay. He was diagnosed in 1986. His original CD4 was in the 600s. He didn't take anything um, for years until 1995 when he complained to his provider he was, quote, having some difficulty thinking, which for a wealth management advisor is not advisable, I would say. So at the time, they started AZT, 3TC, and full-dose ritonavir. Where's Dr. Flexner, do you think? He's getting his hair cut. Is that what you said? Okay. So he went on that, tolerated full-dose ritonavir. His viral load was suppressed below 400, um, and he continued that for a year. And then in 1997, when nelfinavir became available, he was changed to nelfinavir because of side effects from ritonavir, predominantly GI. And the patient said his viral load increased. He didn't know what the value was. But he was maintained on that regimen for another three years. In the year 2000, he was changed to DDI, D4T, and favrins, not a combination we would use today. Um, His viral load was suppressed to less than 200 now, but then rebounded. In 2002, he was changed to a triple nuke regimen, abacavir, DDI, and tenofovir. And then he was told you could take a drug vacation. So this was right before the SMART study came out. His viral load off meds was 476,000, and he gets his first genotype sent. So here's what it looks like. So this is 2002. Recall that he's on abacavir, DDI, and tenofovir. but remember the history I just gave you. And uh, you can see in the NUC category, he has substitutions 41, 67, 70, 184, 215, 219. In NNRTIs, 100 and 103. And then you can see the PI results there. Okay. Put it all right there, and I'm going to ask you a question. So which class of drugs is likely to have the most virologic virologic activity for this patient with this genotype? Nukes, non-nukes, PIs, or none? How many vote for nukes? Okay, non-nukes, PIs. Okay, how about none? Wow, almost the whole audience voted for PIs. Okay, I'd agree with you. Let's take a closer look at this genotype again. Oops, okay. Okay. So when you look at nuke genotypes, what I always do is look for 184 first, and we see it. Not surprising, except that he's not actually on 3TC or FTC. So that's a little surprising that he's maintaining the 184 there without that drug. And then we count up the TAMs, and how many does he have? He's got five, right? Five TAMs, 416770. He doesn't have 210, but he has 215 and 219. So just that amount alone tells us that we're not going to count on the nukes in him at all. He's got significant nuke experience, and with his history, doesn't surprise us. Then we go to non-nukes, and recall that he was only on a Favrens, but he was on it with sort of a questionable regimen for some years. We always look for the 103N first, and he has it, and then he has one of the other significant ones, too, of 100. So we're not counting on the non-nuke class particularly back in 2002 when we only had three non-nukes. Then we go to the protease inhibitor readout. And uh, the first thing to do is you always scratch through 63, right, because that's a polymorphism. And then if you look at the rest of these, you'll notice that he's got these slashes. And everyone remembers that means that he has a mixture Now, that shouldn't surprise us either. He's been on multiple PIs in the past, but he's not actually on a PI right now. So, many of those will represent archived PI mutations. But, again, most of these are secondary ones, not too significant. 46, 71, 84 would be, and 90 would be for certain PIs. So, we have some sense uh, that the PI class may have some activity. And, again, we're all the way back in 2002 making this decision. So, Of course, you know that when you send a genotype, you also get a computer readout, right? So here's the computer readout for this guy with this genotype. It says resistance predicted, and it only tells us of the drugs available in 2002. There were only two where it says resistance not predicted, and one was adephivir. Anyone remember that one? Okay, and the second one was... Lopinavir-Ritonavir. So that uh, everything else says it's resistant, according to the computer. So pretty much agree. great it. Wait a report. minute. How
0: many people say Ritonavir?
1: All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Who woke you up?
0: <laughs> Keep going.
1: It, it's good that we love each other, isn't it? I know. Okay. So he was changed to a PI-based regimen. He couldn't recall which one, but we're going to guess it was a lopinavir-ritonavir-based regimen. He had an initial viral load response, but it then again rebounded four years later, so did get some activity against the PI-boosted regimen. He was changed in early 2008 to a novel regimen, tenofovir FTC plus etravirine plus altegravir. Let that sink in for a sec. Okay, what do you predict about this regimen for him? So read your choices and then we'll vote. Number one, yes, this combo should be potent and durable. Who votes for that? Nobody. Number two, yes, but it won't work for long. Okay, that's a popular answer. Number three, tough to tell. Okay, you're honest. Be honest. They're, everyone's going like, mm-hmm. Number four, magic 8-ball says no. Ah, there There it is. is. (laughs) The magic 8-ball. Okay, I think the right answer to this question is we're suspicious of this regimen, right? We know he has significant nuke mutations. He's got at least one significant NNRTI mutation, and he could have others um, archived. Raltegravir is new for him. It should be fully potent. But both these drugs potentially have low barriers to resistance. So we're nervous about this regimen. It worked for him. So he was suppressed on this for 3.5 years. So given all that, so I think tough to tell was probably the right answer in retrospect. But more recently, he's now experienced breakthrough again. So his viral load is now 34,000. His CD4s, which had been maintained, are now in the 200s, and those numbers are repeated. So... What do we do next? Um, He got a genotype done, and what I've done here is superimpose his most recent genotype this year in 2011 on top of the 2002 genotype. So the the newer mutations are in blue. And, again, what I always do with resistance tests is always to write the regimen on the upper right-hand corner so you know how to interpret this. So what you can see is he's added mutations in every one of the Three classes, right? So not only does he have lots of nuke mutations, but he's added two new ones. He's added two mixtures of non nuke mutations, but these are important at 179, 189. And then he's added one, two, three, four, five, six more protease inhibitor substitutions. And note that the 84 is now all I84V, so it's not a mixture anymore. So with all that in mind, Um, We take it back to the computer and ask the computer to interpret for us this genotype. And before we do that, now which class is likely to have the most virologic activity for this patient? How many for nukes? How many for non-nukes? With all the drugs we have today. How many for PIs? Maybe a couple. None. None of these classes are going to work. Okay. So here's what the computer looked at. How many of you have seen a genotype like this? Okay, but what's the problem with this guy? He's been on a lot of meds in the past. He has more than 10 protease substitutions. Genotype, remember, is all database-driven. So it simply plugs in. These are the mutations, which you can't read, but the ones we've gone over. Plugs it into a database and says, is it susceptible or resistant to each one of the drugs? We want better than that for him, right? This might give us some clues, but what do we need? Phenotype, right? And then we're expecting that the phenotype might give us some clues. So let's take a look at the phenotype class by class. And so the recommendations in a heavily treatment-experienced patient are that you get both the geno and the pheno to help us. So this is the nuke phenotype. Just let you take a look at that for a minute. As you know, the drugs are listed, and the full change, and then the bars. And so which of the nukes would you use in the next regimen? And I just gave you a couple of options at the bottom. So how many would use tenofovir by itself? How about tenofovir with FTC? Okay, some, some votes for that. I'll remind everyone he's on tenofovir FTC right now. Tenofovir plus AZT. Okay, no nukes. How many didn't vote? Lots of people. Okay, how many remember? Next. 1979, the no nukes concert. A couple of you were there, right? (laughs) So in the picture, we have Bruce Springsteen. We have James Taylor and Carly Simon when they were still together. Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Must have been a great concert. I wasn't born yet myself. <laughs> Judy, how was it?
0: <laughs> uh, don't worry. I'm coming up soon again. Oh,
1: God. <laughs> All right. All right. So, Nuke. So, what the, the group voted was Tanapavir FTC, even realizing that he's still on it. And I think you were led by the phenotype here. Um, if you look, his full change is 2.4. Oh, sorry, 1.4 which is actually right at the lower limit of cutoff. So this is implying that tenofovir in him, his isolate, actually tenofovir does have some residual activity. And when you combine it with FTC, of course, we'd expect that to improve. So we're not banking on it, but we're thinking about tenofovir FTC. Let's go to the non-nukes. There was no non-nuke concert in 1979. Um, Here's the uh, phenol, and this includes etrovirine up there. So which NNRTI would you use? How many vote for etravirine? Couple in the back. Uh, Niverapine. Rilpivirine. Couple. No NNRTIs. Okay, this phenotype's pretty suggestive that no NNRTIs would work. And remember the genome. We don't forget the genome. He had four or five substitutions. So even though rilpivirine's not on there, we would doubt that any of them would work. Okay, thirdly would be the PIs. So take a good look again. We've got the PIs listed here. We've got the fold change listed here. And then we've got the cutoffs. And remember what the stripes mean. Partial activity, right? Okay, darunivir, ritonivir. Everyone has to vote. Ah, okay, there you are. Lopinivir, ritonivir. couple. Squinavir ritonivir. couple. And no PIs. Okay, so darunavir has taken the day here, and that makes sense. The fold cutoff here for darunavir 39 was his, but the range for darunavir, you remember, it's fully active till you get to 10, and then it's completely resistant when you get to 90. So he's kind of in the middle there and should have some residual activity from darunavir. Why that, as opposed to any to either lopinavir or Remember, he'd been on that for years. And then you got sequinavir, ritonavir here. It's just tougher to tolerate. So probably darunavir boosted would be the one to go with. All right, but we're not all that excited about what we got so far, right? Okay, so our possible regimen, see, I guess what you would say so far was tenafavir FTC and boosted darunavir. Now, this man has never taken in fuvertide or T20 and would be willing, I talked about it with him, he would be willing to do twice daily injections. So would you recommend T20 now? How many would say yes? bunch of people. How many say no? So good, Good number. And how many say it depends? Okay, that's the most popular answer. What's it depend on?
0: Do you have a clinical trial?
1: So would he have another drug is probably what you're thinking. So we got tenofovir FTC, maybe something there, boosted darunivir partial activity. T20 is going to have full activity. We'd love to have one more option for them, right? Okay. Next. Okay. In addition to repeating the RT, reverse transcriptase, and PR, protease, geno, and pheno, what other tests would you send? So here's your options. Tropism test, IN is integrase genotype. Remember, he's on raltegravir and failing it. Integrase pheno, and then combinations of those. One and two, one, two, and three, or no other tests. So think about your answer. We're going to vote. Everybody has to vote. How many would send a tropism test just the tropism? Okay, some. How many would send an integrase genotype by itself? Integrase pheno by itself? A couple people, a couple yawns. Uh, number four, one and two. Okay, how about one, two, and three? Okay, you guys are the, yeah, whatever. Well, I'll take it all. <laughs> uh, and then six, no other tests. Okay, let me tell you, I think the right answer is actually number four. We know the tropism test, right, because we want to look for CCR5, because Moravarok would be fully active if he has R5 virus. Between these two, geno is the way you want to go. Pheno is just, it's going to say one thing. It's going to say resistance to raltegravir, and that's not going to help you. Remember, these tests will not tell you about investigational agents at all. It's just going to comment on raltegravir. This one, of course, is going to give you mutations, which may help you with some of the investigational agents. How many people in the audience have sent an integrase genotype? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, we're doing this now, right, because we do have options. Next, okay, not surprising, right? Because he's so treatment experienced. So, uh, Ralte, not an option in him.
0: Did you hear that disappointment? Though I
1: did. It was like
0: people were oh. It's extremely
1: heartfelt. It was like the No Nukes concert in 1979. Um, here's his integrase genotype. This is real. So he has substitutions at 74, a mix at 138, a mix at 140, a mix at 147 and he's got a 148. So what's your interpretation, this is the advanced class now, for that integrase genotype? Read your options here. So how many say he is resistant to raltegravir based on that? Raltegravir alone, I should say. Okay, how many say he's resistant to raltegravir and L-vitegravir? A couple. He's resistant to all known integrase inhibitors. Okay, and number four, these are not significant. They're all polymorphisms. I'll tell you what the right answer is. So the right answer is number two. He's resistant to Ral-Tegravir, and remember, Ral and L-Bitegravir are cross-resistant to one another. He's not resistant to all known integrase inhibitors, and I'll show you that data. This must be out of juice. Okay, so integrase inhibitor resistance is now something we need to know. And it's the same concept as the other resistance. It's conferred by resistance in mutations around the active site in the integrase, uh, gene, or the integrase protein itself. So the, the two substitutions that you should know are substitutions at position 148, which is what our patient had, and then position 155, which you can't see there. Um, In fact, when they looked at people who failed raltegravir on the benchmark studies, a quarter of them had integrase inhibitor mutations, or actually, of the quarter that failed, 70% had raltegravir-resistance mutations or integrase inhibitor-resistance mutations. They evolve over three pathways, so these are the ones to remember. Substitutions at either 143, 148, or 155, and then additional substitutions will accumulate. And, in fact, almost everyone has two even if you catch them very early. So let's go forward. Um, here is from the IASUSA chart of integrase resistance, raltegravir is there. You can see the relevant positions, and there are the three to remember, 143, 148, 155, and our guy had 148. So that confers resistance to raltegravir and cross resistance to L-vitegravir. Um, this is what happens over time in benchmarks. So initially you see some 148s, lots of 155s, and a few 143s, and then over time 148 becomes the dominant one. So that would be the most common that one might see. Now, why is that important? It's because of the new integrase inhibitor, dolutegravir. So these are lab-based isolates, and we're looking at resistance to l in green, RAL in yellow, and dolutegravir tegravir in blue. So you can see of these 60 isolates here, many are resistant to LV in green. Many are resistant to RAL in yellow, but very few are resistant to Tegravir. So Tegravir will have activity against some Tegravir resistant isolates. That's in the test tube. We also have clinical data. So this is from Joe Eron. Small study called Viking for reasons that I do not know. Um, But this was people who failed three classes, including Raltegravir or L-vitegravir. And they were segregated into two groups. Either they had 148, like our patient, or all other mutations. And there were only 15 people in each group. They gave them Dolutegravir and then looked for virologic responses. So when they used Dolutegravir 50 once a day, that's shown in green, you can see almost 80% percent resuppressed, but if you had the 148, it was many fewer. However, 100% of those without the 148 responded. Now, what did they do? They doubled the dose in the follow-up study. So, dolutegravir 50 twice a day, and now you can see much better responses. In all three groups, over 90% had some kind of virologic response, showing that dolutegravir worked for raltegravir resistant uh, patients at least in the short term. These are all based on day 11. So it's small numbers, short-term data, but intriguing. In fact, uh, the study is now going on right now. You guys are doing it at NYU. We're doing it at Cornell. Is anybody else doing it in town? Monty's doing it? Okay. Good. So it's available to people. Um, adults with failure, they had to have taken raltegravir or l and be resistant to three or more classes. And the study treatment is dolutegravir. it's single arm, 50 twice a day, plus an optimized background, and they must have one other fully active drug. And did I mention it's um, open? It's open. So we're, operators are standing by right now. Okay, would you refer this patient to this study? How many say yes? Okay, how many say no? Good. No one said no. (laughs) I was going to take down your number and call you. Okay, next. So there are a a number of other investigational agents in the pipeline. We've heard about them all morning long. The only two I want to highlight are two with a brand new mechanism of action, because that has the most to offer our patient. The current nukes, the current non-nukes, um, and the current PIs all don't have special activity over resistant isolates that I know of. But the drug class that does would be the newest one, the CD4 attachment inhibitors. We heard about the uh, BMS compound that binds to GP120 from Melanie, and we heard about a Ibalizumab from Joel, which binds to the CD4 receptor. So I won't go through that data again, so let me skip the next couple slides. Um, in the interest of time... But these are a brand-new mechanism of action. So BMS showed some virologic suppression, as Joel show, or uh, Melanie showed us. And Ibalizumab showed virologic suppression as well. So these are future options. They're in earlier stages of development. So patient is currently screening for the Viking study, and the regimen we would plan to use would be tenofovir FTC, boosted darunivir, and infubertide, plus, as I mentioned, dolutegravir twice a day. Um, and I'll let you know what happens. I think that's it. All right. Thank you.